Um, so every April 13th, my wife and I, on our anniversary, we end up talking about our wedding day and just sort of like rehashing, like, what do you remember now, you know, like three years after we got married? What do you remember from our wedding day? And then uh, those, the answers of, that we gave each other were different year three, and then they were sort of different year eight, and um, I'm fairly certain that we're on year nine. Sometimes I forget the year, and, and I have to do some math. Um, don't tell my wife that I for, uh, just said that. So um, I, we're on year nine now, and we gave that same conversation with, to each other, answers to each other. What, what stands out to you from your memory about our wedding day? And it just changes as time goes on, like the, the struggles and the stresses. But the one thing that I do remember um, vividly was sort of like standing up in the front of the, whatever this area of the church is, and I was just getting over a cold, which I sort of am even right now, and I, I had like a, a really bad sinus congestion thing. And uh, if you're already congested and then you start crying sort of out of joy on your wedding day, the one thing that happens is like an embarrassing amount of just liquid. You know what I mean? Like nose and eyes and, and I didn't remember a, um, a tissue. And so I do remember like getting there. I saw my wife sort of round the corner in this big old Baptist church that we got married in. And just to see her face on the dress and it was just so beautiful, I started crying. Then I started sort of crying uncontrollably. And then I, uh, th there's even video of it, me sort of looking around like, I'm a, you know, like the photos are about to have like all sorts of just really gross stuff. I need to locate that tissue right now. And so I nudged the pastor and I said, you need to pray or something like right now. So then the pastor's like, let us pray. And then uh, they pray. And then I just was wandering around like tissue. Does anyone have a tissue like this? And then my, my dad, you know, is doing this and somebody gave me a tissue. And then all of a sudden um, on the microphone, which gets put you know, onto the speakers uh, is just me going, you know, and then I, for the rest of the time, I was just composed and, uh, and together. That's one thing I remember from my wedding day, but wedding days are just a powerful thing. Like just, it's a powerful thing to go through that ceremony that you prepare for. There's all sorts of um, things within our culture that point to that being a, monumentous, er, a monumental event, and it was especially for me and my wife. Um, and so we celebrated, of course, like anyone does. And so the, the, the miracle that we just read, Jesus' first miracle, is at a wedding feast. And you have to imagine that all the people showing up to this wedding feast had the same experience that we have, which is that we have a cultural memory and a cultural expectation around the way a wedding ought to go. And in those memories just involve all of the joys of a wedding, all of the imagery of a wedding, there's ceremonies. But because this is a Jewish first century wedding feast, there's, there's a lot more because there's a collective knowledge about the Bible, about the promised Messiah, about the hopes that we have of a, of a relational and loving and saving God. All of those things are also sort of shared amongst the group of people who are there because it's a Jewish, first century Palestinian Jewish uh, wedding feast. The reason why we're reading this passage today is because we're starting a new series called Encounters with Jesus where we are going through the Gospel of John just selectively, looking at people's encounters with Jesus and asking the question, what does this show us about who God is and what it looks like for us as believers to encounter the real Jesus? What does it look like for us to relate to God and to interact with God and to live life in the way of Jesus? So 
Today, as I said, in our scriptures, Jesus' first miracle at a wedding feast in a town called Cana. Every person should seek an encounter with Jesus. Whether you call yourself religious or not, or, or Christian or not, every thinking person, every person who wants to be critical and curious about your life needs to ask this question like, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Just because of the sheer fact that he's one of the most influential people in history, and if you actually do your due diligence and look at the claims of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, you have to investigate it because he's one of the most famous people who's ever lived, but he also claimed to be God, to be the way of salvation, to be the path to true humanity, true life. And so every kind of person needs to at least investigate the claims and investigate this person. And that's what everyone is doing when they read the Gospel of John. And that's what everyone would have done if you showed up to this wedding feast, thinking that you would just have a normal wedding experience, but then you met Jesus of Nazareth, and then you experienced the things that they experienced when they encountered this person. Let's think about imagery, Jewish imagery that you would be carrying with you if you showed up to the wedding feast. What I mean is there's a cultural memory. For instance, if, if I said, I've fallen and I can't get up, raise your hand if you would know what I'm referencing here. I've fallen and I can't get up. It's like an old, like just an old commercial of a medic alert necklace that you would wear, and if you fell, you would click the button and your kids would come get you. When's that? Was that from the 80s? And it just carries into the cultural memory, and you'll never forget the line of this poorly acting older woman saying, I've fallen and I can't get up. And everyone immediately in the 80s watched that commercial and said, that's the most hilarious thing I've ever seen, right? This is before the internet, before we all had smartphones, and yet you carry it with you in your cultural memory. If I said, um, I'm going to ruin these lyrics, but I'm never going to give you up, let you down. Uh, what's, how did the song go again? Run around or hurt you? Yeah, you would know because like five years ago, everyone was surprising each other with links in an email, and it said, hey, man, check this out. This is a really important thing for work. And then you clicked on the link, and it was this guy like doing this, like, like from the 80s singing a song, uh, Rick, Rick Astley, right? So it's a cultural memory. Like we carry these things, and you have to imagine that when you read your New Testament, though it was written in Greek, these people experienced the Hebrew first century Jewish life. And so they carry with them things that maybe in our modern world we don't. We filled our heads with Rick Astley. They had the Bible in their, in their hearts. But, um, so let's think for a second. These folks showing up to this wedding would have read Exodus, where we, we call it Exodus 24, where the covenant people of God say to God, what you say we will do. They would have carried with them that. They would have carried with them the concept of cleansing, the cleansing water, that because God is holy, He doesn't need to just do us a favor and come with us because He's perfect and holy, and in our injustices and sin and messiness, we can't just claim to have a relationship with that kind of perfect God. And but, but in the story of the Old Testament, God made a way for the people of God to be ritually cleansed and to be made right with God in the temple. And so they would go through cleansing rituals to physically act out a theological truth that we, can't, we have to be made clean before we can be with God. So they would know the cleansing laws. They would know the imagery from Isaiah 25 that says that um, there will be choice wine 
and a feast, and God's salvation and knowing God is like the joy of drinking wine, the, the, which symbolizes joy and that there'll be a feast and you'll have the respect and dignity of sitting down at a table together, looking face to face, eating great food, and having that kind of joy. That's what feast and, and the imagery of wine would have encapsulated. They would have read the prophets that say that God is like a groom and we are like his bride, loved, accepted, um, with a covenant, with an agreement, just like a wedding. They would have carried with them the imagery of, of wedding feasts. They would have known all the different traditions of a wedding feast, and they would have known specifically that in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, that it says that the Messiah will come with signs. We call them miracles. This is a total tangent, but like we call them miracles um, semeon is the Greek word. We call God's actions supernatural, but that's a very, can we just pause on that word supernatural for a second? Like, we have it in our modern Western mindset that there's a natural world and that God, if he really wants to, can interact with that natural world, and we call that supernatural. That's not a biblical concept necessarily. The book of Colossians says that Jesus is holding together all of creation. Like, in God's power, he's holding together every single atom, and because God's consistent, in his action, we don't just randomly fall apart like on a random Thursday and then re reestablish ourselves on a Monday. You know, like God's consistent. But because of that, we in our modern scientific mindset, we say that that's the natural world. And then when that's disrupted, that's God's action. But no, God holds all of it together. And that the miracles of the New Testament, they're not just supernatural, meaning like, oh, God does really exist because he disrupted the natural world, the scientific world, with his supernatural work. That's, that's not a biblical concept. This is a total tangent. So you, if, you, if you're uninterested, you could forget it in 30 seconds and we'll move on with the sermon. But God can do whatever he wants. He's holding together all of it. And therefore, the signs of God, the actions of God, the miracles of God, even today, they're natural. They're natural because God is holding all of these things together. The function of the miracles is that they are semeon. They are signs, even in the, the passage here. And what are they signs of? They're signs that point to the end of Deuteronomy, the Messiah, that point to the inbreaking kingdom of God, the goodness of God, who he is, who Jesus is, and what he came to do. So, again, it's not supernatural. It's very natural for God to do whatever the heck God wants to do, and that when you see him in breaking that kingdom with signs and miracles, that we know that they're pointing to something. So, that was a long intro uh, for a day that's 100,000 degrees today, and humid, by the way, which is like, God, please help us. Um, uh, so, that was long, but this is all a way to say, you show up to the wedding, and you're in for a great wedding, that's what you're hoping for, but you're also carrying with you all of the imagery that Jesus is going to, like, access and fulfill and grab onto for his very first miracle where he says, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. But it's a weird miracle. I'll grant you that. Like most of the time when people reference John 2, they're just joking around about the fact that Jesus of all people in his first miracle said, you guys drink up, you know? And then even later in the passage when it says, everyone else gets drunk and then you bring out the bad wine, but you brought out the good wine. And, and the hint is that like there's a culture around people over drinking at their wedding feast because they're just celebrating. And so it seems very non-religious for Jesus to do this. And so for years and years, people have joked around about it. And yet, there's something just very special going on here that we would miss if we don't really think about it. So we're going to walk through three things today about why this is Jesus' first miracle. 
how it shows us in verse 11 his glory and causes us to believe. And so we're going to walk through three things. The jars, the hour, and the wine, and what it means to us. The jars. Let's look in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, this, now moving to verse 8, he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, and they did so. So with weddings, it would have been an embarrassment for you to run out of wine because that means you didn't prepare to really host the people. Um, and the wedding feast at the time would last multiple days. Like weddings for us are a very short time frame. But in the Jewish community of the first century, they would go on for days and days and days. And so if you didn't have the courtesy and the forethought to provide a lot of wine for multiple days of the feast, what that means is the message would go out to all your loved ones and neighbors, I'm not really interested in celebrating with you for very long. And that would be a kind of shame and degradation to the community and to the people that you do love enough that you invited to the wedding. So it's an inadvertently shameful and hurtful message to dozens of people that, that it would go out immediately. We didn't want to spend any money on you. We don't want you to hang out for multiple days. We want you to drink as much wine as we've got, and then we'll all sort of disperse and we can be done with this. And in a shame and honor culture that also highly valued people sitting down and, and the respect of a meal and saying, I value you enough that we're going to sit down together and eat, um, in a shame and honor culture, with that as a high priority, this would be a very hurtful thing. And so the, the married couple is not just saying, oh, we didn't plan our wedding enough. They're saying, we're going to make enemies out of all the people that we love, and we're going to be shamed for a long, long time. So here's the point. Jesus steps in with his first miracle, and he uses the, the stone water jars that are used for ceremonial washing, and then he turns it to wine so that these people can be rid of their shame and their guilt. So immediately, you have to see that Jesus is not doing this um, flippantly. He's living out a parable. There's imagery to this historic event. So I'm not saying this is a mythical story. I'm saying Jesus is choosing his first miracle to carry a lot of imagery so that you know something about who he is and what he came to do. And so he's saying, hey, you know these stone water jars that you guys frequently use to cleanse yourself to make you right with God. Well, let's, let's turn that into wine and now add to that the imagery of wine that leads to God's joy and salvation. And I'm going to bring that wine so that you can be rid of sh your shame and your guilt. And, and what we know from the rest of the Gospel of John is that Jesus later in his life says, this wine at the Last Supper this line is the cup of the covenant. This blood is shed for you, for the covenant, for the marriage, for the agreement, for the relationship that goes on for eternity. This wine will be shed so that you can be made right with God, so you can be cleansed, so you can be with a holy God that would otherwise be separated from you. The jars, cleansing. The wine, blood that was shed for you. And he's saying, in a living parable, that you can be rid of your shame and guilt 
through my salvation that I bring. And I guess I just want to ask an obvious question. Do you feel like at times that your life is motivated by shame and guilt? Like there's a way to live your life where your self-worth, the, the large decisions that you make in life are not necessarily made from your own personal desire to, to make godly choices, but on the expectations that are put on you from other people, so you don't want to let them down. Or guilt, where, where um, it seems like it's sort of a good thing. You can think of yourself as a really good person because you're saying, I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to do wrong things, and so I want to do good things. And yet, you know that if you live a life year after year that's just motivated by guilt, you'll wake up one day and look at yourself and say, I don't have a self to even hold on to. Because you're constantly just trying to run away from the expectations of others or run away from not feeling like a good person. And so the, the wonderful thing of the gospel of Jesus is that through his death on the cross, he takes on the guilt and shame that would otherwise be placed on us. And now this wonderful reversal happens where we're free from guilt and shame from God. And now we make decisions not just based on guilt, not based on trying to make sure everyone likes us in every moment, but on what honors the Lord. It's gospel belief that causes us to be rid of our shame and guilt because he took on that on, for, on our behalf on the cross. And now we get to just honor God from a place of freedom and joy. And that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. That's the first part of the imagery that's going on here in Jesus' first miracle. Secondly, the hour. Did you notice that Jesus is randomly sort of abrupt with his mom? Like, uh, speaking of teenagers, the next time your mom asks something of you and your response is, woman, you know, I don't know what happens in y'all's household, but it would be the, you get to pick this side of the hand or this side of the hand, you know, like woman, this is not my time, you know, this is not a smart response to your mom. And um, I've, I've seen different translations of John 2 sort of soften the language, dear woman or something like that. And so we should just ask the question, like, what's going on here with Jesus that he would respond in this way to his mother? And, and was it an ungodly thing for him to, to do the, that? In the culture of the time, it wouldn't be completely uh, wrong for him to have said this word, and yet it's clear that it's, it, it, there's not the Greek word here, dear woman. It's just woman. It's abrupt. It's, it's meant to be sharp. It's meant to be critical of the thing that she's asking of Jesus. But it's sort of a confusing thing. If you look in verse 3, it says, The wine was gone. Jesus' mother said to Jesus, they have no more wine, verse 4, women, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. This is an odd response. It's sort of a cryptic response. Jesus is clearly correcting his mother with what she said. And Jesus is never, the odd thing is, Jesus is never like this elsewhere. You know, he dies on the cross and quotes Scripture. He's, um, he's beaten, and he seems to have a lot of poise, even in the midst of the most, like, daunting, suffering times in his life. And yet, in this moment, he seems rattled, and he seems to confront his mom without some level of poise. And this is because if you read forward in the Gospel of John, every time Jesus uses the word hour, he's referencing the time, the hour of his death. So this is the first foreshadowing of the hour that Jesus would take on sin, die on the cross, 
and be that sacrificial lamb on our behalf. So uh, Jesus' mother very immediately says, Jesus, I know there's something special about you. I, I know from the angels. I know from my experience of being your mom that you can do something about this. And then his response is, my hour is not yet come. That's because Jesus in this moment is sort of drifting off to another bit of imagery. He's cluing you in to a different time, a different wedding day. Jesus is thinking about his wedding day. There's another instance or or, or, uh, side of this where Jesus is also saying, Mother, I've come to do the will of the Father, not your will. And I know what that means. And I know where that's taking me. So this is the moment where he's sort of splitting off and saying, you know what, this is the time to start my ministry, my public ministry. This is the time for me to start, for people to start recording all the things that I've said. And my time has not come yet for me to, it's not my time to do your will. Now my ministry is starting and it's time to do the Father's will, which leads me directly to the cross. And Jesus is thinking about his wedding day, which is another bit of imagery where because of the relationship that we have with God through the cross, we have a covenant, a marriage covenant. I'll give you uh, two instances from Scripture. Matthew 9, Jesus' followers are criticized for not being very religious because they don't fast. They're not doing the good religious duty of fasting. And then Jesus says in Matthew 9, 15, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fa- then they will fast. So the point Jesus is making here is that I am the true bridegroom from the prophets, the relational, loving, loving, covenantal, committed God from your Hebrew Bible. I am He. And when we look at the end of the Bible, we see that there is a wedding feast between God's people and Himself. Revelation 21.2, John who wrote the Gospel of John, also writes Revelation. He says, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Elsewhere in Revelation it says, the angel said, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So at the end of time, the true God who is relational and covenantal and loving and sits down with you and has a relationship with you, committed to you, loving with you, intimate, that God Jesus Christ, that's what your future will look like with Him. That's the life that we live as Christians. Jesus knows, though, that before that wedding feast can happen, the hour, before the relationship can happen, before before the hope can fill our hearts, the first thing that has to happen is the hour of His death. That's what's going on with the hour. Thirdly, and as we wrap up here, the wine. There is one time in the Gospel of John that Jesus talks about cups of wine, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's facing the cross and he says, God, let this cup of suffering pass from me. That's Old Testament, old historical imagery that a cup that was filled with poison would be taken and it would mean death for you. And Jesus is saying that cup Can it pass from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus says in Matthew 26, this blood, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus took the cup of suffering 
so that we can take from the Passover meal the cup of the covenant. So, what does it mean to us? It means that Jesus' death brings joy. All this sort of thousand-yard stare, Jesus is a little bit mourning even though there's a wedding feast going on. He's thinking of the hour of his death. But then the wine comes and then there's joy. All of this imagery, all of this thing that Jesus is going through is meant to describe for us that God died for your joy and for your enjoyment of life. I don't know if you think that. that it, you might live your Christian life with sort of the belief that um, the Christian life is kind of a drag. It means you have to be really good all the time and you have to give, forego a lot of fun and your own enjoyment. And, but, but at least you get to go to heaven. But in part, Jesus in his first miracle is saying, I'm going to die so that you can have a kind of joy that you would never have otherwise. So that you can have a fulfillment and a, a hope every single day that you would never be able to access if I didn't come. That's what Jesus is telling us. And that's in the imagery of the bridegroom. I'm sorry, not the bridegroom, the, um, the, the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is the one who dis, uh, discovers how good the wine is. Look in verse 9. Master of the banquet tasted the water that it had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have brought the, you've saved the best until now. So the bridegroom gets all the credit for the miracle that Jesus provided, and the master of the banquet, who is, you know, a master of the banquet. You ever been to a wedding? It's the DJ. It's the like, and now, and then like, the, the two friends of the bride and groom that they haven't seen in five years but got invited to the wedding party, and then they come and dance, and people are throwing rice in the air for some reason. There's all sorts of wedding traditions I don't quite wrap my head around. But like, the DJ, he's the, the entertainment, he's the, the joy person, the person who's reminding you of the significance of how fun a wedding reception is. And Jesus is saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I've come to bring festival joy. I've come so that no matter what you're going through in life, you can look forward to your future and say, if I lose everything, I have a, a wedding feast, what Revelation calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. I, I get to sit down with Jesus. I get to live with the kind of hope and resilience and power today knowing that whatever I'm going through, that future will not be taken away from me, that I'll be with him, that I'll sit with him, that we'll feast, that there will be wine, if that's a thing that you're into. Like there will be a kind of joy overflowing that I would never be able to access if it weren't for Christ's death on the cross for me. So he's the true master of the banquet, and he's the true bridegroom. When you're a pastor... I get, a, I get the special experience that most people at a wedding don't get, which is that every time you do a wedding, you get to see the bride do that same turn that my wife did that made me cry so much. You're standing next to the groom, and sometimes you have to hold on to the guy's shoulders because once they see their, their bride-to-be, they're just kind of, you know, like they just do a kind of thing where it's like, ah, you know. Have you ever been to a wedding, by the way, where someone faints? That's always a fun one, too, where it's like something about how special this is just makes people's blood f go from their head, and then all of a sudden they just are, 
doing this one, you know, and you have to catch them too. So, like, it's a very special thing, and as a pastor, you just have that privilege of seeing that angle all the time. You get to see the bride beautifully dressed, probably looking more beautiful than on most any day of her life, and you get to go through this biblical imagery of God's people, received, radiant, beautiful, hair tossed up, whatever, whatever imagery is going on here, like just the lights are on her, dressed in white, made pure, loved. And at the end of that aisle, there's a covenant that's formed. And of course, the imagery there is that it is a seal. It's a commitment. I will always be yours, and you will always be mine. And I, it's just a real privilege of being a pastor and seeing that. But that's the imagery that we get with Jesus, that he's the true bridegroom who in the midst of our screw-ups and shortcomings, personality flaws, and sins receives us, covenants with us, and loves us. I want to give you four very quick application points for a day that reminds us of God's terrible judgment because it's so hot. I want to give you four applications that are just like joy-bringing so that we can think about God's grace and joy and not His judgment on a day that's 105 and humid. One, um, this wine, the wine that is the joy of knowing Jesus, is the only wine that won't run out. If you make your Savior, your joy, your self-worth, your job, the affection of a certain person, it'll run out. But the joy of the belief of Jesus because of your future, because of your forgiveness now, because of the relationship that always goes no matter what, that's a wine that doesn't run out. And the jars, the six stone water jars, you have to imagine how big those would be. The passage says specifically six, each of them holding a ton of water. That's a lot of wine. More wine than most people can drink. Like even if you really tried at it, that's the point of it. And so this wine, the wine of, the, of belief in the gospel, it's the only wine, the only joy that just doesn't run out. Secondly, second application, do whatever he tells you. Like Mary said that. She was confused. She didn't know what Jesus was saying. He's being cryptic again. And yet she knows enough about the angels, enough about what she knows about her son. Just do whatever the heck he tells you. Like he's being cryptic again, but he always has a point. And it stands to reason that if Jesus is who he says he is in your life, if he is Lord, if he is Savior, if he is good, then there's going to be times where you don't know what God is doing, you don't know why Jesus wants you to do a thing, and yet your response, if Jesus is who he says he is, needs to be, do whatever the heck he tells you. That's the posture we bring to our Christian life. Third application. Sip on the future joy in the midst of our present sorrows. Like, I, I can't get away from this imagery of Jesus sitting at the wedding, probably not talking to a lot of people, like finishing his wine, <laughs> like drinking, like, this is pretty good, actually, if I do say so myself. Like, he's finishing his wine, but he's thinking about his death, so it's not like the most joyful thing ever. And while he's staring off in the distance, thinking of, of the suffering that will come to him and the imagery that he himself has created, on the, on the flip side, in the midst of our sorrows today, we get to sip the coming joy of the covenant and the solid future we have in Jesus. And so if you're in trouble, if you're 
hurting, if you're going through things that it seems like the sorrow you're going through will never end, sip on the coming joy that is available to you through Jesus Christ that will never go away. And last thing, oh, I have two more things. I'll be very quick. Um, Don't let marriage fool you. Some of you are not married, and sermons on marriage kind of frustrate you because it's like, when will this happen, and why hasn't it happened already? That can bring about a kind of frustration for a lot of people. Also, if your marriage is sort of struggling, and you're like, you know what, this topic reminds me of some of the worst struggles, because you know that if you're in a struggling marriage or in a struggling season, there's very few things in life that can go right that will overcome how hard it is when your marriage is, is going difficult. Or you have a successful marriage and you feel like, you know what, we should write a book about this, you know? Like you might be in a really good place with it. Whatever it is, don't let marriage fool you because all of this is an imagery from Jesus that reminds us that our true marriage will happen at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Like whatever you expect from a marriage and you hope from a marriage or you're not getting from a marriage and that frustrates you, all of those things are meant to point to the the true acceptance, the true dependable groom the true intimacy and joy that we will only truly have at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then lastly, don't settle for a boring faith in Jesus. Like if you're, I heard someone say this a long time ago, and I don't mean it to sound insulting, but if you're living a very boring Christian faith, it might be that you're just boring. (laughs) You know, it's not that God's boring. It's not that God doesn't intend great joy for you. It's that you might just be living out a very boring kind of Christian life. And if you're living a boring, stilted Christian life, I want to submit to you that it might not be that you're living the most biblical Christian life. It might mean that you have actually unbiblical motivations, unbiblical understandings of God, ungodly things that are going on in your life that are mixing with your faith that create a kind of guilt-motivated, shame-motivated, expectations of others-motivated kind of Christian life. And yet, if you lose that, through your faith in Jesus, now we have available to us a kind of joy and freedom and, um, and, and excitement in following the real Jesus that follow my words that I stole from somebody else. If your faith is boring, stop being boring. Follow the real Jesus. That's not a great way to end a sermon, but let's just end it, okay? Cool. Amen. <laughs>